I think when Paul asked everybody to stand up, I think I heard a few more groans this morning than a typical Sunday morning. After our time uh, with the, the wood cutting party yesterday, it was a great time of fellowship together, but uh, there, there's a few that are still feeling the effects of that just a little bit yet. So hopefully it won't groan too bad after sitting for a while now. But uh, please turn with me now to John chapter 13. So we move in actually to a whole new section of the Gospel of John. You know, I've been talking about how Jesus is, is ready to go to the cross. So that we've talked about in chapter 12, he was in the week before going to the cross. I think, oh, well, John, the Gospel of John must be about over. Uh, we've got quite a ways to go. Because what John does in his Gospel is he gives us information in fact, most of the, the information in the Gospel of John is, is not found in the other three Gospels. But especially chapters 13 through 17, which all occur, every, all the teaching and the events that occur in, in chapters 13 through 17 are on, on the evening before Jesus is arrested. When That evening he will be arrested and it's the, the, the night before he goes to the cross. And so John gives us content that the other three gospel writers certainly benefited from, but it wasn't written down. And so here, here Jesus is giving these truths to his disciples, to his, those who will be the apostles, for their growth, for their training, for their preparation, because after he dies and, and raises and ascends back into heaven, it, it's going to be them that God is going to use to go out and begin what he called his church or his assembly. They will be the ones who will take the good news of forgiveness through belief in Jesus. And so this particular night is concentrated with a, an abundance of teaching directly from Jesus for them. And I'm sure an awful lot of it, they look back and say, oh, now I understand what he was saying on that night. Um. And so as we head into that, remember that then, of course, we are the results of their ministry. Uh, it was because the apostles received this teaching and then went out and were faithful to share the gospel that we can believe today. So if you are a believer in Jesus today, this is, this is information for you as well that then they passed on to the rest of the church. But follow along with me, if you would now, as I read uh, John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. <clears throat> now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, 
What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. So even how he deals with his self-centered disciples is impacted by the fact that he's going to the Father. He's got, he's got a, the bigger picture in mind. Isn't that helpful sometimes? You know you've got something hard to do, but you know... This is coming. There's still good that's going to be on the other side of it so I can endure through this. Jesus uses the example of a woman in labor, right? It's like, ah, going to have the baby. That way I can push through that. That's probably one of the greatest (laughs) examples. of. But a lot of life is that way, right? It's time to push through because God's promise of what's good on the other side. And Jesus was looking forward what was on the other side of the crucifixion and death and bearing sin. John also tells us before Jesus uh, washes his disciples' feet, this other truth, that having loved his own who were in the world. Here's Jesus' heart as well. There, There wasn't anything or anywhere that Jesus wasn't loving. This was not the beginning of Jesus loving his own. And I think, in a sense, he has in mind the, the, well, the 11 who have believed in him. They were most particularly his own. But in a sense, his own are all who will believe in him, right? Even us to this day. But we think here, he's with these men, Uh, They were born into the world. And we've talked about how the world is a system dominated by Satan, right? In rebellion against God. They were born into that. That's what they had known. That's what their their life and their context was saturated with. It says here, Jesus loved his own who were in this world, who were, were soaking in that all their lives. And now Jesus, through what he's about to do, intends to turn some of their thinking totally upside down and on on its head. There's things that they've absorbed by, how do you live in this world? Well, you take care of yourself. Well, how do you live in this world? Well, you get all that you can. Well, how do you live in this world? Well, you you make do and and, and you you think about what you need. All kinds of messages we get today as well, right? Jesus loves people who have been hit with that message and had it drilled into them and beaten into them 
and given an example of that, and he cares enough that he's willing to give of himself beyond what we can imagine. And it finishes up that verse, that first verse, he loved them to the end. And that phrase can mean that he loved them to the end of time, or he loved them to the greatest extent. And I think both of those are true, aren't they? And if we look at Jesus' earthly life, he loved them right up to death, right? He didn't stop here on the night that he was going to be arrested and say, man, you guys just take care of yourselves. I've got to take care of me because things are getting really hard tonight. No. Right up to dying on the cross. Kept on loving his own. But also loved them and us to the fullest extent that love can go. There is no greater act of love than what Jesus did for us in dying on the cross. But it includes all kinds of acts of love, which includes washing his disciples' feet. And so even in the what we might think of as the little things, Jesus kept on loving and giving. Then verses 2 through 5, we see Jesus' humble service. And, and what John keeps on talking about what Jesus had in his mind during this time. It says, During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Oh, what else is on Jesus' mind? This man that he has loved to the end. This man that he has made part of his close group of followers. That he's lived with day in and day out, and he knows that the process is going on now for him to be betrayed. Because Jesus wasn't surprised by Judas's betrayal, was he? Well, clear back in chapter 6, he mentions it. In fact, back in Luke chapter 22, verse 4, it indicates that he had already made the arrangements to betray Jesus with the Jewish leaders, and he was just waiting for the right time to carry out the treachery. So in Jesus' mind, he knows this man sitting here in close communion with him at this special meal pretty soon is going to go out and tell the people who hate him where they can find him away from the crowds and arrest him. That is also on Jesus' mind. That's me. I'm saying, I'm sorry, I, can't, I cannot wash his feet. I can't do any more. I've got enough in my heart and my mind right now. But that was in Jesus' mind as he gets ready to undertake this action. Then verse 3 tells us, Jesus, again, knowing. John wants us to know what was in Jesus' heart and mind before he does that. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. So on the positive side of things, all things had been put into Jesus' control. He doesn't go to the cross because he was betrayed or tricked or overpowered. He's operating from a place of complete power. This statement is especially amazing given what Jesus does next and over the course of the next 24 hours. See, if, if any one of us 
said, oh, all things are under your control. What are you going to do with that power? What course of action would you take? We can learn a lot from Jesus, can't we? Back, remember, in Matthew's account, let's turn to Matthew's account, chapter 26, 51 through 53. And here as Jesus is, is being arrested, it says, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Jesus here blatantly says, If I needed somebody to protect me, all I have to do is, is ask the Father, and he will willingly Put under my command 60 to 70,000 angels or more. If he had requested them, they'd have been there to do anything he commanded them. And one angel would have been enough for him to not had to raise a finger against those who came to, to arrest him. Read upon what some angels did in the Old Testament, right? So anything that Jesus did that was outside of others serving him and others obeying him really is amazing. Because he went into this night with all power, all things having been put into his hand. That's why back in John chapter 10, verse 18, he says this, no one has taken it away, his life he means. No one has taken it away from me, but I, lie it, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So Jesus going to the cross never was about other people taking his life or overpowering him or outsmarting him or anything else like that. He came from an amazing place of strength and gave of himself. It's really the, the, the ultimate picture of the word meekness. We think of someone being meek, meaning they're weak. But meekness means doing something for others because well, we, we think of it as you, you do it because you have to. But meekness is truly doing what others need at a great cost to someone who could have powered their way through the situation with their strength that they have and not cared about others. Jesus could have struck down the whole Roman Empire with all of its armies and everything if he had chosen, but instead he said, no, in my power, I'm going to go and do something even greater. I'm going to pay for the sins of mankind. That out, far out, outweighs any of those other things that I might have done with this power that was, was given to me, that is mine from the Father. But John's still not done telling us what was on Jesus' mind that, 
that day. It says in the middle of verse 13, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So Jesus also remembering where he is in the context of eternity, you could say. Here's proper perspective. Jesus was sent by the Almighty God who created everything. That's who he had come from, where he had come from, from the glories of heaven he had come. He was sent on a mission on behalf of Almighty God. He was, you could say, the apostle or ambassador who should have been treated like the one who sent him. Everyone who encountered Jesus should have bowed down in worship because he was the one sent from God who was God. He was equal, is equal with the Father in essence and power and glory. In fact, going back to the idea of the angels, if he wanted the disciples' feet washed, he could have had an angel down by each one of their feet, right? Jesus didn't have to go and wash their feet. He could have rightly insisted that the disciples serve him, right? But he also knew where he was going. Interesting, there's basically something that he's already mentioned coming back up again. Where is he going? Well, he's going to the Father. And Jesus would lay down his life and serve others and then go back to the Father. He kept that fact in his mind through all of this and longed to be back where he belonged in glory. In just a few chapters, chapter 17, verse 5, he says this to the Father. Now, Father, glorify me together with you, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus knew in completing the mission that he'd been sent to do, the other side of it was back to that glorious place where he had come from and that he deserved. There's no reason but love and providing a greater understanding of the glory of God for mankind that caused Jesus to keep on going. But to do what he did next, with all these things in his mind, we come to verses 4 and 5 that talk about Jesus' actions now that speak volumes to us. It says, He got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Notice it says he got up from supper, literally got up out of supper. I, I don't know. It seems like there's a little bit more meaning in that sense because they would already settled in. They were ready to celebrate the Passover meal together. And he literally got up out of that meal that he'd been longing to celebrate with his disciples. And as he looked around, as they're sitting at a low table, laying down, leaning on cushions, their feet right close, not under the table like we have today, but right there next to the person laying down next to you. He looked at that, and he loved his Stinking, self-centered disciples, right? Literally stinking. They'd been out walking on the roads and the pathways of Israel. 
along with where the donkeys and the horses were and what they left behind and what everything else that might have been walked on in their, in their open-footed sandals. Jesus, because he loved them, got up out of his place of honor at the table. A meal that was all about him. A meal that showed the culmination of what he was there for. And set that aside. Stepped out of that context for the sake of blatant sinners who had been arguing, the other Gospels tell us, about who is the greatest. And who were not willing to wash each other's feet, they just left them smelly in front of all the others. It's a perfect picture of Jesus stepping down from the glory of heaven to serve sinners. Where he should have been honored and worshipped, he stepped out of that, and it says he took the role of a servant. He took off his outer garment, laid it aside. Kind of like his glory, right? And he got down where all the smell and the dirt was, wrapped himself in this big long towel that they would use for this purpose. A servant was the one who was supposed to do this. If you had guests, you would have a servant who would wash the feet of your guests. But even the, 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 old, or the, the Jewish custom said you couldn't force a servant to do this job. And Jesus made himself the lowliest of slaves to his disciples. Really, it's just, it's just a living out of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. If you turn over there quickly with me. Philippians 2, familiar verses, but I think important to read them here. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Because he was willing to here literally become a servant, which pictured what he had done in, in coming to die for sinners. And you know, he even washed Judas's feet. You're taking on the tasks nobody else wanted to do, and for this man that he knew was in the process of betraying him. And then Peter gets involved, right? It says in verse 6, So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And I think this was a question of shock on Peter's part. Apparently the others who had already been had their feet washed must have just sat there in stunned silence. Here the master, here the teacher was taking on the job of the lowliest servant. And they don't know what to say. Probably just kind of an awkward silence fell over the room. But Peter's not going to leave it silent, is he? Lord, you are going to wash my feet? And, and he's emphatic about that you. You? 
It just emphasizes that Peter says, this doesn't fit in my mind, this just isn't right. Like the idea when Jesus said, I'm going to go and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and be beaten and, and, and raise again on the third day. Remember, Peter rebuked Jesus. That will never happen to you. He says, you're going to wash my feet? The idea here obviously doesn't sit well with Peter. He wasn't going to let this happen, according to verse 6. And then verse 7 is, is a great verse. If you don't get anything else out of this, remember verse 7 for yourself. Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Here's what we should be hearing in much of our lives in following Jesus. We don't understand what he's doing. And we often think that what's going on shouldn't happen. And he quietly says, you'll understand later. Trust me. It's interesting his wording he uses here even is, you don't realize now, but you'll understand experientially. You'll know experientially later. In other words, you're going to have to live with this for a while, and then you'll know it because you've lived it for a while. So trust me. I know this doesn't set well with you. So I don't know what's in your life. I have things that I don't really care for, and I don't understand it. I want to say, Lord, what are you doing here? This doesn't fit my idea of what ought to happen. He says, you'll know later. Just trust me and walk forward with me. But Peter wrestles out loud with this, this whole idea. And we can be so thankful for Peter, grateful for Peter, and for people like him. Because there's so much we wouldn't learn if, if they wouldn't just say what they're thinking and, and think things out loud, right? He says the things that other people might be thinking, but they're afraid to say. And so the rest of us then get to learn because they say it out loud. It's interesting here he says literally, Lord, you my feet do not wash. No, never shall you wash my feet until eternity. I know you don't see that in your English Bible. That's pretty much what the Greek underlines. It's strong. It's like this just is. There's no way, Lord, this is going to happen. Thank you, Peter. Even though you were totally wrong, because then we got to see what Jesus had to respond. And as Jesus deals with Peter, he says, if, you, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Wow. Heavy-duty words, right? In essence, he says to Peter, you're, you're much more needy than you think. You have greater needs than you realize. This is the opposite realistic perspective that Peter and all of us must be served by Jesus for our sins to be forgiven. By being brought into covenant with him, believing in him. Because you have to let me serve you. Because you are so needy, nobody else can help you with the problem you have. We can't fix ourselves. Peter's statement might seem humble at first. No, no, you're the master. You can't. But it's really saying, no, no, I'll wash my own feet first. <laughs> the way we approach God sometimes, 
I, I can take care of this. But Jesus is saying, if I don't do it, you can't connect, be connected with me. You can't have a relationship with me because you can't fix the problem that you have. Uh, so, of course, Peter's like, oh, well, then wash my head, wash my hands, wash, every, wash everything, Jesus. And then Jesus takes it to a whole other area. He basically says, well, a person who's bathed only needs his feet washed. And that's, that that's, you know, fits their day because they were out walking on the dirty, dusty roads in open sandals. Okay? And so they picked up a lot of dirt there. If they've just taken a bath, you just need to clean up the part that got dirty on the way. And Jesus takes that to a whole other area. He says, Peter, other disciples besides Judas, you have believed in me. Therefore, you have had my righteousness already credited to your account. Like the Old Testament, well, they are, in a sense, they are Old Testament believers still, right? Because Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. And like Abraham, they believed God and it was reckoned to them as righteousness. It says, so the righteousness is theirs by what Jesus is about to do in just a few hours. The effect of the cross had already been credited to their account. Now the relationship just needs to be kept up, and that's where you're at if you believe. Jesus has washed away all your sins. But practically speaking in life, you, do we have a quit sinning? No, not, not yet. And so we need our feet washed periodically. We need cleaned up. And so Jesus uses this opportunity to, to push this ahead. It'll be needed down the road that, yeah, just let's get the relationship right. I'm going to need to wash your feet for you, get things right between us. But notice he also says about Judas here that not all of you is clean. Judas had never come to a point of believing in Jesus, trusting himself to Jesus for his own sin of realizing Jesus was here for more than taking over the kingdom. And he doesn't have that righteousness from God that Jesus is about to fully purchase. And he'll prove his unbelief by completing an act of betrayal. He's already being controlled by the devil, we found out back in verse 2. And the control is only getting stronger as the night goes on. And then in verses 12 through 17... Jesus explains. Quite a few verses this late in the morning, isn't it? But it's pretty simple in so many ways. It says, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done? Got to love Jesus. He asks a question, not because he needs to know, but because they need to stop and think about it. What, what's this all about? If they haven't already been thinking. Did you get it? Did you get it? And then he goes on and says, you, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one sent greater than the one who sent him. Here's a case where Jesus is our example to follow once we have believed. A lot of people think, oh, well, what's Christianity about? Oh, it's just following Jesus' example. No, not first of all. First of all, you have to get washed, right? You have to be clean. 
then you can start following his example. Okay? And here is an argument from what is greater to what is lesser. If Jesus, who has all of these things on his mind and on his plate and what he's doing, can wash your feet, Peter, and your feet, Thomas, and so on, don't you think you can wash each other's? Think of what an awe-inspiring thing it is that the God of the universe, the teacher, the Lord, the Master, would stoop to wash your stinking, dirty feet. How hard is it for you to serve each other by doing stuff that you really don't want to do? Maybe doing stuff nobody wants to do. Notice, the intent is serving one another, too. And some of you need to hear what I'm going to say next. Because you've gotten really good at serving one another, but not so good at being served. It means you've got to let some people serve you sometimes. Because God said that you would wash each other's feet. Now, wash your own feet, and then wash everybody else's feet in their own. There's a mutuality to what he calls us to here that we learn by as well, because we still need some humbling and to realize God uses other people to do the things he's going to do in our lives, and we need to let them do that. And then finally, verse 17, it says, if you know these things, you're blessed because you know them. Is that what he said? Now, if you know these things, you're blessed if you... Do them. Now, I know some churches have foot washing uh, rituals that they do. I guess there's nothing wrong with that. It reminds us that we need to serve others. But Jesus here wasn't introducing a new thing for the church to do in ritual form. He's saying, if you know this, if you got it, if you figured it out in here, you know where the blessing comes? Go do it. Go serve each other. Go do those things for each other that nobody else wants to do, that maybe you don't want to do, but you know in the power of Christ. You can do it, and what's going to come out of it? Oh, more good. You're going to go wish, and I think it was, was what Paul said about that song, God may take something good out so he can replace it with something better. Oh, but I could spend that time doing, oh, Jesus says serve. Why? Oh, there's something better in the serving of others. Oh, but somebody else can do that that's better suited. I, I ask you to serve that brother or sister, that person who hasn't come to know Christ yet. There's blessing in it. There's good that's going to come. And Jesus pairs his disciples with this teaching and this demonstration because so often that's how people understand who Jesus is. They watch the church and they see how the, how the believers in, that, in the church treat each other. And they say, is this real? Or is this just some sort of a routine that they go through day by day? Is this real or does it change the lives of these people to be what is more, more than, than what I'm seeing in my life? See, if believers in Jesus lived in His power and followed His example on a more consistent basis, 
Just think of what God would do through us as we lived by faith in that way. Let's pray. Father, I know my flesh is far too strong so often, and I resist you when you want me to serve, and I turn away from serving that is unpleasant to me. And I suspect that's probably the case of others here today. And So, Father, we do need your help uh, to see things more clearly as Jesus did when he, he took on dirty feet. Help us to know the, the big picture context and how, how we know where we're going. Why shouldn't we do what needs to be done right now considering the glory of what's coming? Why shouldn't we do um, what's unpleasant when you, in Jesus is all power and he has united us to him and put, it, put your spirit in us. Lord, help us to think more clearly and then have a will and a heart of love for you that, that we would move forward and a heart for others as well. Uh, thank you that you can accomplish this in us more and more each day. In Jesus' name I pray.